Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. But first, let me make a short announcement, and that is I'd like to thank everyone out there that supported Exploration and got a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. I'm proud to announce today that it just hit the New York Times bestseller list. This makes it my fifth New York Times bestseller. The book, The God Equation, also hit the bestseller list on Amazon, both for England and the United States. So the fact that the book has been such a great success, first of all, I can say thank you for all those that supported Exploration and bought a copy of the book. But the fact that the book has been so popular reflects the fact that there is a hunger out there, a hunger for people to know what does science say about the universe itself. Is there a unifying paradigm? Is there a theme? Is there some kind of overarching principle that can explain the vast diversity of matter we see in this gorgeous universe of ours? Well, in the God Equation, I say, yes, the paradigm is music. That's right, music. Music of subatomic particles as evidenced by string theory, which is what I do for a living. I'm the co-founder of String Field Theory, one of the main branches of string theory. And if you watch The Big Bang Theory, uh, you know that Sheldon is an expert on string theory. So I'll say a few more things about that. Uh, given the fact that at Fermilab outside Chicago, the first crack was seen in the standard model indicating that perhaps there's another theory out there. Perhaps that theory, that unifying theory, could be string theory. Anyway, let's just summarize some of the top stories of the past week and then jump into it later. First of all, the good news. The good news is that the numbers are now in. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are 95% efficient in terms of reigning in the coronavirus after analyzing not a few thousand, but tens of millions of people that have now been vaccinated. And the death rate, we now have a number for the death rate. Out of 66 million people being vaccinated, one, one in a million deaths took place. That's less than the chances of being hit by a lightning bolt. The chances of being hit by a lightning bolt are two out of a million. And yet the chances of a death coming from these vaccines are one in a million. However, there's also bad news. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there's a controversy concerning blood clots, not to mention the fact that the Brazilian and the South African variation on the coronavirus is causing a lot of concern among scientists. In fact, the head of the Pfizer Corporation announced that he expects that a booster shot may be required after 12 months. So if you've had the vaccination by Moderna and Pfizer, chances are within 12 months, you will have to have a booster shot. And then I'll say a few things about outer space. First of all, the Mars helicopter has been delayed, but we hope to see it launched over the red planet. Just remember that the Wright brothers' historic flight lasted 12 seconds, 12 seconds that changed the course of modern history. 
Well, the Mars helicopter is going to make a trip 40 seconds long. And imagine, imagine one day a fleet of perhaps hundreds of these helicopter drones scouting the red planet, looking for a landing site, looking for what happens at the North Pole, looking for a place to put a base on Mars. The possibilities are endless. Also, NASA chose Elon Musk's SpaceX to build a $2.9 billion lander, which will take our astronauts to the moon. And so we now have a timetable and funding for a mission to the moon. And who's going to be going? Well, perhaps a woman and a person of color. Also, we'll say a few things on the physics front. Uh, we announced last week that, uh, well, two weeks ago at Fermilab outside Chicago and outside Geneva, Switzerland at the Large Hadron Collider, we found a crack, a crack in the standard model of subatomic particles indicating there's a new theory out there, perhaps a gorgeous theory, an elegant one, much better than the current mess that we have today. And maybe, just maybe, it could lead to string theory. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story concerns the coronavirus. First, the good news. The results are now in. Rather than just relying on hearsay or studies of maybe uh, 10,000 individuals, we now have the results of 66 million Americans that have been fully vaccinated. The results are extremely encouraging. For the Pfizer vaccine, we know it is 95% effective. The Moderna vaccine is just a little bit less effective than that at 94%. But we see also the fact that we may have to have a booster shot. Why? Because we have variations springing out all over the world. The two main dangers come from South Africa and also Brazil. But because the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine uses mRNA technology, it's rather easy for them to modify it to meet the challenge. So it means that perhaps within 12 months, you may need a booster shot in order to make sure that this variation doesn't get out of control. And again, what is the probability of death after you get the vaccination? It turns out that out of 66 million people being fully vaccinated, 74, 74 people died. That is about one in a million. And the chances of being hit by a lightning bolt are two out of a million. In other words, the chances are better if you get vaccinated than walking outside and expecting to get hit by a lightning bolt. And so this exceeds expectations. And again, it's not perfect. Nothing is perfect in this world, of course. But it does mean that we're going to get a handle on the coronavirus. Now, the bad news. The bad news, first of all, is some people are resistant to being vaccinated. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's their business, right? No, it's everyone's business. Because if a large chunk of the population does not get vaccinated, it means that that'll delay herd immunity. And the longer we delay herd immunity, the greater the chances of more lethal variations springing out into the open. In other words, it's a race against time. On one hand, we want to vaccinate as many people as possible so that 
the virus cannot make the next jump to the next victim. But if poor countries, for example, or people in the United States and Europe just refuse to get vaccinated, it'll be a fresh supply of meat for the coronavirus to grow and mutate and to create deadlier versions. So in other words, it's in everyone's interest to make sure that as many people get vaccinated as possible. And that means an education program as well. In the military, in some areas, up to half, about up to half of the GIs say, nope, I don't want to get vaccinated. And so we have to tell them that if they don't get vaccinated, there is a chance that they could come down with the coronavirus, meaning, of course, the possibility of death. Also, critics of the vaccination program point to the Johnson & Johnson fiasco. It turns out that blood clots have been found among the millions of people that have been vaccinated by the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In fact, one woman died. Another woman is in critical condition. But again, you have to put this into perspective because of the fact that once you're talking about millions of individuals, the fact that some people die like one woman and one woman in critical condition could be just a fluctuation. It could be a pre-existing condition. It could be totally unrelated, or it could just be bad luck. In other words, nothing is 100% effective when it comes to biology because there's so many variations and possibilities of changes taking place. But the numbers are clear. Once Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is okay by the United States government, it'll go back to protecting individuals. Now, it's not as effective as the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. They are 94 and 95% effective. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is about 66% effective, but it is still effective against the coronavirus compared to what happens when you do nothing at all. And so, in other words, what I'm trying to say is something very simple. We want to attain herd immunity. There's two ways to get there. One way is to do nothing and just let everyone get uh, get the virus. Hopefully enough people do not die so that the population can regenerate. But, but that's how it was done in the old days. In the old days, people did nothing except die. And the survivors were part of the group that were relatively immune to the virus. The other possibility is to vaccinate as many individuals as possible. The longer we wait, the more the chances of mutations developing. Mutations could be deadlier than the original virus. And so in other words, it's a race against time. Also news from outer space. First of all, the Mars Ingenuity helicopter was delayed, but it's supposed to take off and make history. Remember back in 1903, the Wright brothers, two amateur bicycle makers, whipped together an airplane and it flew for 12 seconds. 12 seconds that changed the course of history. It showed that with an airfoil and with an engine, two features that the ancients did not have, but with an airfoil wing and a engine, about one horsepower, you could then lift a heavier-than-air object into the atmosphere. So we owe a tremendous debt to the Wright brothers. 
Now we have the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars. It will fly for maybe 40 seconds and make several trips and imagine for the moment a fleet, perhaps a hundred or so of these drones in the future scouring the surface of Mars. You know, rovers are great, but rovers cannot go to the polar ice caps. Rovers cannot go into dangerous terrain like meteor impact craters that have jagged rocks. And robots are very slow. And so if you have a fleet of helicopters, you can scout out potential landing sites for astronauts, potential sites where mining operations can begin, places where perhaps a Mars base can be established, a place where perhaps one day agricultural fields of algae and genetically engineered crops can flourish. So you can imagine that the timetable will be speeded up rapidly if we have a fleet of helicopters on Mars. Of course, it's not easy. The atmospheric pressure on Mars is 1%, just 1% of the atmospheric pressure found on the Earth, meaning that the blades of this helicopter have to spin five times, fast, five times faster than a conventional helicopter. But hey, there's no new physics involved. We can do it. It's just a question of engineering and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Also news from outer space, SpaceX has just been awarded a $2.9 billion contract from NASA to build the lunar lander, which will take our astronauts back to the moon. Here's how the moon program stands right now. Originally, people thought that by 2024, we would have astronauts walking the surface of the moon. That's been delayed, so we don't know when it'll take off. But here's the plan. The booster rocket that'll take four astronauts into outer space will be the Boeing SLS booster rocket, which has been delayed. It has cost overruns, very expensive. Some people even think it might not even fly. But assuming that the SLS booster rocket gets off the ground, then it will take four astronauts into lunar orbit. Once in lunar orbit, two of the astronauts will transfer to the SpaceX lunar rocket and then land on the moon. They'll then do surveying operations for about a week and then fly back to the Orion spacecraft and back to the planet Earth if all goes well. Now we have to realize that SpaceX has a tremendously good track record with the Falcon Heavy rocket and going to the International Space Station. It's broken records. While the Boeing company is still trying to uh, field its, its mission to the space station, SpaceX is already way ahead of it and is pretty much under cost. Imagine that it costs $10,000 to put a pound of anything into orbit. That is your weight in gold, $10,000 per pound of anything just in near Earth orbit. SpaceX has been saying that they could do it for half to maybe one-fifth the cost, vastly reducing the cost of space travel. How? Several techniques. First, rockets are reusable. We throw away booster rockets just after one use. That's a tremendous waste of money. Can you imagine junking your car after using it just once? Well, why not have it reusable? And that's what SpaceX pioneered. Second of all, SpaceX has used the Falcon Heavy rocket to assemble a rather commendable record 
a very high success rate, even for a private corporation that does not have all the layers of safety regulations that NASA has. And so we're in a situation where SpaceX is an ideal situation to build the lunar lander. However, some critics say that, well, look at the Starship. The Starship rocket built by Elon Musk, well, it blew up four times in a row. And so that's not a very good track record. But remember that the Starship program had a different goal. That goal was to go to Mars because Elon Musk has a vision. A vision is to create a two-planet species. In other words, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. That's why the dinosaurs are not here today to talk about it. We do have a space program, and Elon Musk wants to have an insurance policy. An insurance policy says such that if something bad hit the Earth, like a pandemic, or nuclear warfare, or global warming, we'll have an insurance policy that one branch of humanity will survive. So why put all your eggs in one basket? Now, what about the cost? As I mentioned, costs are dropping dramatically. The whole face of this space program has been revolutionized by the cost-cutting measures and efficiencies introduced by Elon Musk SpaceX. A real shot in the arm. And so, again, we're entering now a new era in space exploration. The old era was extremely expensive. It turns out that 5% of the entire federal budget went into the Apollo space program back in 1966. Imagine, 5% of every tax dollar you paid in income tax went to the Apollo space program. That was unsustainable. Now NASA's budget is one-tenth, one-tenth, of that in the 1960s. So with Elon Musk winning this contract, it gives a tremendous boost once again to SpaceX, and it means that SpaceX and Elon Musk beat out Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. Elon Musk is the second richest man in the world. Both have rocket programs. SpaceX has amassed a tremendous track record. That's probably it won over the Blue Origins project of Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos also has a vision. His vision is to make the Earth into a jewel, pollution-free. All the heavy industries and pollution will be sent into outer space so that the Earth would become a jewel, a jewel that is free of pollution and all the excesses of industry. So, well, we'll see how it works, but so far, SpaceX is ahead. Now, let me say a few things about the world of physics. And that comes from Fermilab outside Chicago and outside the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. Well, it was announced that the muon has different magnetic properties than the standard model. Now, what the hell does that mean? First of all, for 50 years, we've been stuck with a rather clumsy, rather ugly, but successful model of subatomic particles. It's called the standard model. It is a theory so ugly, only a mother could love it. It has 36 quarks and antiquarks. It has about 20 free parameters that are not specified. You have to put those numbers in by hand. Three generations of identical particles. I mean, why would nature have three redundant sets of particles? It sounds like an excess. People thought that at the fundamental level, at the micro scale, nature would, come, would become simple, elegant, beautiful. Instead, 
it went in the other direction. Messy, with hundreds of particles coming out of our atom smashers every time we smashed a proton. Well, nature was not supposed to be this way. Einstein thought that the universe would get simpler, more elegant the deeper you went. But here we are, with a zoo, a zoo of subatomic particles, all arranged in a rather clumsy arrangement called the Standard Model. It's held sway for 50 years. For 50 years, we've seen no deviation from the Standard Model, which is great for the Standard Model, but awful if you're a physicist because there's nothing new to do. Ho-hum. How boring. Well, that's why this new result is astonishing. For the first time in 50 years, we see the first major deviation from the standard model. What does that mean? It means there's a new force out there. Some people think this could be a hint of a super force. A super force at the beginning of time that held the universe together, but was a defect and the super force collapsed, giving us the Big Bang. In other words, the secret to creation itself may lie once we figure out why we're getting an anomaly at Fermilab outside Chicago. Now, the muon is sometimes called a fat electron or heavy electron. The standard model has three redundant generations of particles, so that the electron has two other partners. They're identical in properties, pretty much, except they are more massive than the electron. But why should Mother Nature be so redundant? Well, it turns out that a result from the Fermilab now shows that the muon has different magnetic properties than the electron. Now, this is big news. As Einstein used to say, when you see the tail of a lion, sometimes there's a lion at the other end. This could be the tail of a lion, the first crack in the standard model. So what does it mean? Well, uh, let me put my cards on the table. I have skin in the game, and that is I'm pushing for a string theory. You see, there is a paradigm, we think. There is a unifying principle. There is a unifying paradigm for the whole universe, and that, we think, is music. Only music has enough richness to describe all the matter and all the intricacies of this gorgeous universe of ours. It didn't have to be this way. The universe could have been chaotic, ugly, random. But no, it's pretty gorgeous, except at the standard model, it's still kind of ugly. Therefore, even the creators of the standard model of the subatomic particles knew that it was only a halfway step. We have to now take the next step, which could take us into string theory. Now, Pythagoras, the great Greek mathematician, the man who discovered the Pythagorean theorem for triangles, tried to find this unifying paradigm, and he said it's music. Only music is rich enough to explain the infinite varieties of matter we see around us. Well, he looked at a lyre string, and he plucked it. The longer the string, the lower the note. And if you go to a blacksmith shop and see a sword, the longer the sword, the lower the note. Well, said Pythagoras, bingo, using mathematics, the mathematics of resonances, he could then show that each of these corresponds to a musical note. A, B flat, C sharp, so on and so forth, correspond to different vibratory modes of 
a lyre string, or a sword. Now, his theory unfortunately never went anywhere. The Roman Empire fell apart, and for a thousand years, the world was sown into darkness, chaos, witchcraft, sorcery, inquisitions. But a thousand years later, we now come across the idea that subatomic particles may be carriers of the music of the universe. So if I had a super microscope and I could peer into an electron, I would not see a dot. That's the old picture, that the electron is a point particle or a dot. The new picture is the electron is actually a rubber band, a rubber band that vibrates in a certain way. Now, if you twang it, it changes the frequency of vibration and it's no longer an electron. It becomes a neutrino. And you twang it again, the vibration changes. It's the same string, but the vibration mode changes and it becomes a quark. And if you twang it enough times, it becomes the hundreds of subatomic particles that we've cataloged tediously in the laboratory. And so music is the language of the universe. This means that subatomic particles are nothing but notes, like A, B-flat, C-sharp, of a tiny string, a rubber band, inside an electron. What is physics? Physics is the harmonies you can write on these strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play when strings bump into each other. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God that Albert Einstein spent so many decades chasing after? The mind of God is cosmic music, cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That is the mind of God. Well, I've been on a book tour. I've been on the CBS Stephen Colbert show. I've been on MSNBC, Fox, PBS television, promoting the book, The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. And I'd like to thank you in the audience for supporting exploration and picking up a copy of the book. The book is now a New York Times bestseller. It also hit the Amazon bestseller list for both the United States and England. So I'd like to thank you for supporting the work of exploration. And the publisher has offered copies of the book to be used for fundraising purposes for public radio. That's right. So perhaps your radio station will be offering copies of the book as part of its fundraising program. Now, the last question is, what about God and religion? Well, I'd like to quote Galileo. Galileo once said that the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. In other words, science is about natural law, how the heavens go. But religion is about ethics, how to go to heaven. As long as you keep these two distinct, they are complementary. However, if somebody from the sciences begins to pontificate about morals and ethics, or when an ethicist begins to pontificate about natural law, that's when we get into trouble. But as long as you keep these two separate, they are complementary. So in other words, you can explore the natural laws of the universe and still be a moral person. Or if you come from a religious background, you can learn 
some of the natural laws that govern this great, glorious universe of ours. So in other words, they are in fact complementary science and religion. Well, I'm afraid that concludes the first part of Exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku inviting you to stay tuned for the second half of Exploration. Not only will we continue a discussion of Einstein's theories, but we'll also talk about his politics as well. We're going to bring on Fred Jerome, author of the controversial book, The Einstein Files, about Einstein's FBI files. So stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we talk about the science and politics of Albert Einstein. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we summarized some of the top stories of the past week, including the fact that my new book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, hit the New York Times bestseller list this week as well as the Amazon bestseller list for both the United States and England. So I'd like to thank those people that support the work of this radio station and picked up a copy of the book. Now, the book talks about the fact that Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life chasing after a theory of everything. He wanted a common theme, a common paradigm, a common principle, an equation which would allow him to summarize the vast diversity of everything we see in the universe. He failed. However, he laid the groundwork. So physicists today think that, well, we think we have it. It hasn't been tested yet, but we think it is something called string theory, which believes that music, music is the unifying principle, the music of subatomic particles. So find out more by getting a copy of my bestseller, the God Equation, the quest for a theory of everything. Now, of course, Einstein just didn't have a life doing physics. He was also political. He was famous for fighting against the Nazis. In fact, the Nazis were so irritated that Einstein was so effective being an anti-Nazi that they even published a book, 100 Authorities Denounce Einstein. Can you imagine that? The Nazi Party publishes a book denouncing the work of Albert Einstein. So Einstein was asked, what's your reaction to the fact that the Nazis have 100 leading German intellectuals denouncing relativity? And he replied that, well, you don't need 100 authorities. All you need is one fact, one fact to disprove relativity. And that's the end of the story. Well, of course, that one fact 
never arrived because relativity has survived every challenge so far. But in the second half of exploration, we're now going to leave the world of pure physics and go into the world of politics. Because Albert Einstein had a file, an FBI file. He was politically active. He had a dream, a dream that one day we could create a just, moral, egalitarian society. But of course, that dream cost him his freedom. He had to leave Germany. In fact, the Nazi party even published a magazine with his picture on it, with the caption, quote, not yet hanged, unquote. In other words, there was a price on Einstein's head. But nonetheless, he kept on his anti-Nazi activities. And in the 1950s, he went into the movement to protest McCarthyism. And so our special guest in the second half of exploration is Fred Jerome, author of the book, The Einstein Files, talking about Einstein's huge FBI file. So in other words, not only was he the genius that pointed the way to a unified theory, a theory of everything with the God equation, Einstein also was a moral person who stood up against the political tide. Mr. Jerome, how did you first get interested in tracking down, of all things, Albert Einstein's FBI file? Well, actually, it was about eight years ago I was doing a magazine piece on the media's coverage of Einstein, and I stumbled across a, a small reference in the New York Times, and I mean like page 17 of section D, right next to the weather map, which referred to the fact that the FBI had a file on him. And I was quite surprised and decided to go and, and get it. And when I, when I read that file, especially after I obtained the entire, or virtually the entire 1,800-page uh, file on him, uh, I, it was then that I realized that there was a tremendous amount of information there that we had been, that had, that had been denied to us. It was almost like a shipment of history that had been hijacked. And uh, I decided to write the book, which came out two years ago, The Einstein File, J. Edgar Hoover's Secret War Against the World's Most Famous Scientist. Okay, well, let's talk about Einstein's political evolution, because his evolution, of course, spanned many decades, yes. and he was there at very, very important pivotal events in world history and participated in some of them. So let's get back to his childhood. What was it, going all the way back to his early days in Germany, that led mm -hmm. to his rather rather accelerated political <laughs> evolution? Well, it, it's interesting. He was born in, in, in uh, 1770, uh, 1879, and it was... Uh, he came of age, you might say, with both electricity and uh, imperialism. Uh, maybe that would account for <laughs> some of his scientific uh, uh, pursuits, that is, the electricity, and imperialism maybe with his account for some of his political directions. Uh, he, I mean, the, the Kaiser, the German Kaiser uh, said, uh, I think around the same year he was born, maybe a year earlier, the the great questions of the day will not be settled by re resolutions and majority votes, but by blood and iron. And so you had the building up of this very militaristic Prussian society and a very militaristic Prussian army, which he, uh, and also there was at the time a lot of anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, in any case, he decided to, to avoid that militaristic Prussian army by leaving the country. 
Now, yeah. a lot of teenagers don't all of a sudden decide uh, <laughs> to leave the country, renounce your citizenship. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a, a rather dramatic statement to make. So was it that he was rebelling against Prussian militarism and conformity? Is that the reason why he decided to leave his country and give up German citizenship? From I think primarily. I mean, he was in, in school. He talked about uh, his reaction to school was that elementary school teachers were like sergeants and, and high school teachers were like lieutenants. And, uh, I mean, he'd been rebelling against it for some time. It wasn't a sudden... Uh, he didn't wake up one day and decided he was going to rebel. Mm-hmm. But uh, his family, uh, his parents actually were, were moving their business, which uh, there was also a depression at the time, and small businesses were having a difficult time, and so on. But he was able to move uh, to Switzerland uh, about as easily as I think a lot of people during Vietnam were able to move to Canada. And fortunately, he was able to go to school there. And uh, when he went to the university in Zurich, uh, around the turn of the century, just before the turn of the century, it turns out that there were a lot of uh, political refugees from, from other countries in Europe also hanging around Zurich. And uh, that, that, so he, he probably learned a good deal of his politics in Zurich uh, at the Odeon Cafe, which was a popular gathering place for uh, radical Rus- Russian refugees and, and others like like uh, Trotsky and Kalantai and, and so on and so forth. Not so, that he didn't go to class, but sometimes he didn't go to class. Okay, so here we have a draft dodger, mm-hmm. uh, someone who renounces his own uh, German nationality, mm-hmm. uh, tries to apply for Swiss citizenship, mm-hmm. and then is right in the thick of some of the greatest scientific uh, turmoils uh, of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, uh, there were war clouds also looming around that time. So, of course, he was very well aware uh, that as he became more prominent uh, in the world of physics, that world war could break out. Mm-hmm. So uh, given the fact that at Berlin University, where he finally as- aspired to when uh, relativity theory finally bust, uh, bust open on the scene, mm-hmm. uh, many of the faculty members at the University of Berlin uh, uh, signed a manifesto uh, agreeing with the Kaiser that right. this was the way to right. uh, support German civilization. Most of them did, yes. And so what did Einstein do, given the fact that there was all this war hysteria <laughs> surrounding his university? Well, it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, when he went back to Berlin from, from Switzerland in early 1914, he probably didn't expect World War II to, to break out. Maybe it was a little bit, I, I like to compare it to canceling a, a camping trip for a, for a seat on, the, uh, uh, on, on, a, on a ship that's about to be sunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but in any case, uh, he did... Uh, war did break out a few years after he got back to Berlin, a few months after he got back to Berlin, excuse me, in 1914. And he was one of really three academics in Germany who refused to sign this this manifesto supporting the Kaiser's uh, attack on the uncivilized hordes. Uh, some of the words are, are much more explicit than that and uh, called for uh, an end to the war in a, in a united Europe. So he uh, was really sticking his neck out at that point, right? You figure he was a, a Jewish physicist in a, in a country that had, was swept up by war fever. All the faculty were, were, uh, were going with the Kaiser mm-hmm. in terms of uh, enlisting for the military and working for the military. And here were these three intellectuals that opposed this gigantic tidal wave. Yeah, it was, it was a, it, I think he probably had a little bit of 
immunity from attack. Uh, certainly one of the other intellectuals was, was uh, almost arrested and was exiled from Germany, uh, I think because he was Einstein and uh, had already had his miracle year, and then in 1916 uh, came up with the general theory of relativity, or was it 1917? Uh, to some extent, they would, they would allow him a little bit more leeway in what he said. But uh, you never know how much, you know, and I think he was, he was sticking his neck out to some extent. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about his political activities uh, between wars. Okay. Um, one thing I found out that I didn't know ab- about was that the University of Berlin, after the chaos of World War I, was taken over by radical students. Yeah. And they had barricaded the campus and had actually uh, uh, taken, taken the president of Berlin University hostage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was this crisis between the Weimar Republic and the German students. Yeah. And the German students uh, wanted a radical professor who could negotiate a deal. Yeah. And, well, of course, everyone said, well, obviously uh-huh. it's got to be Einstein. Right. Uh, Einstein, actually, there, there are a number of versions of what exactly happened during that particular period of, mm-hmm. of uprising. But uh, it seems clear that Einstein basically supported the Weimar Republic at the time. Mm-hmm and how much he was able to influence the radical students is uh, i'm not sure but it is on record that he he told them that they ought to support the Weimar Republic and give it a chance and so on and so forth um which eventually uh, did happen i don't i don't think he was able to totally detour the the revolt at, at just i don't think his words alone were able to de- detour the revolt. Right. Well, Max Born, who is one of the founders of the quantum theory, mm-hmm. uh, actually accompanied Einstein on his visit to the students. Right. Uh, he went past the barricades right. uh, where there were, you know, trash bins on fire and chaos mm-hmm. in the streets. And uh, here, we, here we have two Nobel laureate physicists right. <laughs> on their way to meet the radical students. And yeah. then after that, they went to the, um, the Reichstag mm-hmm. and they met with the, uh, the Weimar Republic leaders mm-hmm. and they began to broker a deal. Yeah. And yeah. it led to the release of the president of the poor university mm-hmm. who was uh, captured by the students. Yeah. Now, also, one of the leaders of the um, Austrian Social Democratic Party, his son, right. assassinated Right. Uh, one of the leaders of the German government, and the assassin was actually a physicist, right. a physicist who was actually a friend of Einstein. They had become friends in Zurich, actually. Right. They uh, had been schoolmates. Right. A Professor yes. Adler. Right. And normally, you would figure that a physicist uh, who was a friend of an assassin would run for cover mm-hmm. and basically <laughs> try to protect their own skin by saying, I don't know this person. Right. Uh, who is this person who just assassinated a, a German official? Yes. But here's Einstein uh, coming to his defense. Yeah, he actually testified on his behalf and offered to and, and uh, really uh, maybe saved his life. That's right. So yeah. we have this stereotype of Einstein being this kind of absent-minded professor. But if anything, he was razor sharp. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the limits of how far he could push, uh, how far his fame could protect him. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you said that because that, that really is the key to, to my book and, and anybody who looks into Einstein's politics is that, is that, is that we have been handed down this, this image uh, in the last, certainly since Einstein's death, of a, of a sort of bumbling, absent-minded, kindly old professor with his head too high in the clouds thinking of abstract uh, equations, 
to be concerned about what's going on in the real world, whereas the fact of the matter is he was quite concerned, and he continued to be concerned, and he was concerned when he was in this country, and he opposed uh, McCarthyism, he was very outspoken, and he particularly opposed racism in this country. And uh, it's not at all the image that we have been handed handed down over the, the last 50 years. When I was growing up, uh, some people would say when they mentioned his politics at all, they would say that he was naive, uh, that he didn't really understand the larger real forces at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if anything, to me, is the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't see himself as a pra- pragmatic compromise maker that cuts deals in mm-hmm. a parliament. That was not his role. No. His no. role was to be more like a Gandhi, to, to set the, the spiritual and moral tenor of the affair. That was his role. And I think he was very clearly cognizant of the role that he would play in political crises. Yeah. In fact, uh, we're skipping past a few things here, but it, uh, just to, to mention it, he was, he was asked to endorse and support hundreds and hundreds of organizations. Uh, and he actually did endorse and support, I counted, some 70 of those. But each one was carefully thought through, and many were rejected. And it was it was those which he supported, which he felt were the, going to be the most effective. He lent his, his prestige, really, to the cause of his moral and political indignation, right. as okay. has been said. Right. Now let's move on a little bit. Uh, war clouds uh, start to brew once again as World War II approaches. Mm-hmm. And in 1933, Einstein leaves the country for good. And the newspapers say that the Pope of Physics has left. The new Vatican is Princeton. Mm-hmm. However, the question is, what was Einstein's attitude toward the Nazis? Uh, some pacifists uh, said that we should allow... Hitler to take power and show what, a, what an idiot he is, mm-hmm. allow him to do his dirty work? Well, Einstein said no. Yeah, almost, almost as soon as the Nazis came to power, and maybe even before then a little bit, his position, his pacifism, which he had, after World War I, he had become involved in pacifist organizations, such as the War Resisters League and others around the world. Um, his pacifism began to be, he began to qualify his pacifism because of the Nazis. And he felt that the Nazis presented such a horrendous threat to mankind um, that they probably could only be defeated through a military struggle. And uh, we know now that he wrote the, the letter to Roosevelt in 19... This is skipping a few years, but he wrote the letter to Roosevelt in 1939, urging Roosevelt to consider uh, launching an atomic bomb project because he was convinced at that time that the Nazis had launched an atomic bomb project. And he didn't want Hitler and the Nazis to have a sort of an atomic monopoly and be able to blackmail the rest of the world with the atomic bomb. And as history has shown, Einstein's instincts, once again, were much uh, much more clear than mm-hmm. the so-called political realists. As we now know, uh, Germany did have a very active atomic bomb pro- project set right. up before the United States. We know that the world's greatest uh, quantum physicist, Werner Heisenberg, was the head of mm-hmm. the German Nazi program. And we now know, just within the last a few years, that Werner Heisenberg did not sabotage the German right. project, but he actively worked on a German atomic bomb. Right. So we have the world's greatest quantum physicist 
working for the Nazis to build a super bomb mm-hmm. for Germany. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think Einstein, even after the war, because after the Germans, after it became clear the Germans, despite Heisenberg, were not were not going to succeed uh, in in making an atomic bomb. Eisenhower, Einstein's uh, position uh, changed, and he didn't particularly he did not want the U.S. to use the atomic bomb. Now, by the way, during the war, uh, a lot of people, of course, asked a simple question. Why doesn't Einstein work on top-secret military projects? Mm -hmm. But apparently the military itself at that point uh, axed the idea that Einstein would work on the atomic bomb. One of of the points I make in my book, uh, The Einstein File, is, is that J. Edgar Hoover was instrumental in helping the military, uh, military intelligence, actually deny security clearance to Einstein in 1940, the same year he became a citizen. And uh, and it was based on that denial that Einstein was unable to work on the Manhattan Project. But uh, is, isn't it also true that J. Edgar Hoover was intimidated by Einstein? I mean, everyone around Einstein was grilled by the FBI except Einstein himself. He was never grilled by the FBI. And so some people speculate that maybe J. J. Hoover was actually intimidated by Einstein. Well, it's possible. Uh, I, I like to think of it uh, as not just intimidated by Einstein, but by the fact that Einstein had such a worldwide following that I think Hoover knew. And in fact, in the file, he makes several references to the fact that ordering his men not to interrogate Einstein, not to interrogate anyone who might tell Einstein that he was being asked about, because Einstein had this habit of calling press conferences and telling the world about these things. And so I think that what he was afraid of in the case of Einstein was that Einstein would tell everybody that the FBI was investigating him, and Hoover would look like the uh, ass that he was, and you know, a laughingstock of the world. Uh, so it, I don't think it was just Einstein alone that intimidated Hoover, but Einstein and his, his worldwide uh, following, which was so tremendous. Okay, now let's take uh, a look at the post-war era. Mm-hmm. Uh, Einstein was asked after Hiroshima, uh, would he have worked on the atomic bomb, and knowing what he did mm-hmm. uh, about what happened to Hiroshima, and he said that if he had known that his work would lead to the bombing of Hiroshima, he would have become a fisherman yes. rather than a theoretical physicist. Yes. So now, what happens after the bombing of Hiroshima? Well, I think uh, even, I just mentioned that even before the bombing of Hiroshima, Einstein wrote a letter to Roosevelt, again, at, at the behest of, of uh, Leo Szilard, urging Roosevelt not to bomb Japan. And it was found on Roosevelt's desk the morning after Roosevelt died. Uh, and so that there was this strong feeling among many scientists, Einstein included, uh, against the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, after that bombing, many of the scientists who worked on the bomb, including Zillard and Oppenheimer, well, many, many of them, uh, Beta and and uh, and so on, formed a committee, or many committees, actually. The committee that Einstein became the chairman of was the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists, and they issued protest after protest uh, against the uh, growing nuclear arms race, and they also spread information about the nature of nuclear weapons among the pub- to the public, um, which has got the FBI terribly upset because the FBI was convinced they were going to release information 
about the atomic bomb and the Russians were going to read it and then the Russians would have the atomic bomb. Now, I understand that in different versions, incarnations of these groups still exist. Uh, the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists no longer exists, but we have the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Yes. And that network, that network of nuclear physicists set up by Einstein still exists as the Federation of American Scientists, That's many correct. of them populated by nuclear physicists who worked on the, on the atomic bomb uh, during the Manhattan uh, Project years. That's correct. And, and Einstein articles were, I think, in the very first issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. He had a, a piece and several others. And that still exists, and the, and the spirit, I think, still exists, the spirit of, of reaching out to the public on these questions has not been completely crushed. Okay, now yeah. let's talk about the McCarthy years. Yes. And once again, when uh, the waters get troubled, uh, there's a tendency for professors to run like hell and, and hide under the covers. Mm -hmm. And here's Einstein uh, going right up against uh, McCarthyism. Yeah. So think, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I think it may be that perhaps his greatest legacy to the future, or as great as any, I don't want to take away from any of his science, the legacy of his science, but but I'm not the first one to say this, an Einstein expert in, in, in Boston, John Stachel, who's the head of the Center for Einstein Studies at Boston University, has said this, that one of his greatest legacies certainly is his example of the courage that he demonstrated in standing up to the McCarthy committees and the other congressional investigating committees and urging people to refuse to answer questions. This is in 1953, uh, even if it meant going to jail, and that it was the only way to defeat these committees. And if enough people did it, the committees would be finished and McCarthyism would be finished. And it was a call for civil disobedience at a time when it was he was the first one to do that, really, and, and the was attacked for doing that, even by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And yet he did it, and it did have an impact on many people. Uh, within within a year, McCarthy was was on the rocks, and I think he was censured the next year, 1954. In any case, Einstein's call uh, urging of witnesses to refuse to answer questions from these committees that made the front page of the New York Times twice in one year, in, 19, in 1953, in June and in December. And if it made the front page of the New York Times, you can be sure it made the front page of, of newspapers around the world, then uh, as now. And that had a tremendous impact, I think, on the, on the growing, on the, the sort of turning around of the McCarthy uh, period, although that turning around took a while to, to, to complete. Right. Now let's talk about racism. Einstein, of course, uh, being Jewish, uh, was, uh, had to bear the brunt of anti-Semitism, especially in Germany. Yes. Um, but also he was very involved with the African-American movement here in this country, which is not widely known. Absolutely. Could I, you elaborate? Of, of all the little-known aspects of Einstein's political dimension, his, his anti-lynching and anti-racism activity is, is the least known. And in 1946... After World War II, there was a wave of lynchings that, that swept across America, especially the southern states. Some 56 black men and women, mostly GIs, were, were lynched in this country, uh, compared to something like three in the, first, in the last year before the war. And Einstein spoke out against that, as he had on many other uh, issues. And in uh, September of 1946, he, he 
was co-chairman with Paul Robeson of a group called the American Crusade to End Lynching, which which led a march on Washington in September to demand that the federal government pass anti-lynching legislation. Einstein wrote a letter to Truman. He was unable to actually attend the march because of his poor health. Uh, he also spoke at Lincoln University, a black college, the oldest black college in, in this hemisphere. Uh, he spoke there in 1946 in May, received an honorary degree, and he, he, was, he generally did not do this during the last years of his life. He didn't go to colleges. Or he had many invitations. But he wanted to send a message, and, and the message that he sent in the speech was that racism was the worst. Well, he said in this speech, he said segregation was a white man's disease, and I'm not going to remain silent about it. And later on, he said racism was America's worst disease. And this, what's interesting is that this speech at Lincoln University in 1946, the most famous scientist in the world at the oldest black institution of learning in the hemisphere, not a word has been published in a single biography of Einstein anywhere, and that counts hundreds of books. And uh, it's so that uh, it, it, it's, it's an example of the fact that this vital aspect of Einstein's outlook has been kept from us. And I think in, in this day and age especially, we all suffer as a result of, of not knowing it. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Fred Jerome, author of the book, The Einstein Files. And you've been listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to find out more about what I do, then go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. So far, I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest one, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything just hit the New York Times bestseller list. So go to my website and find out how you can order a copy of my latest New York Times and Amazon bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. Good day. <laughs>